Welcome to a new episode of Ready to Launch, a special podcast series on entrepreneurship in the MENA region. A collaboration between Priyada, a Wilson Center podcast, and the straight-up startup with Raja Isahoudi in Amman, Jordan. I'm Marissa Khurma, Director of the Middle East Program here at the Wilson Center. So today we turn our focus to climate change and security in the MENA region. In commemoration of Earth Day, that is celebrated April 22nd with our very special guest who is both a social entrepreneur and environmentalist and activist, Safa Jayousi. According to the latest report by the Congressional Research Service, the MENA region is among the world's most water-stressed and vulnerable regions to climate change and its various impacts. And the worries that the report Uh, talks about amongst policymakers do not only include the physical and economic impacts of climate change, but also the potential implications for political stability and security in a very volatile region. But the hope lies in the work led by individuals such as Safa, who has been in environmentalism for more than 10 years, mobilizing, campaigning, and training at the grassroots level in Jordan and across the MENA region. So Safat, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I, I guess I will start with how eager I am to hear your story. You know, how did this all start for you? And what drove you to embrace environmentalism as your cause? Well, I think it's it has been my passion since I was in school. Um, And back then, like, I'm not too old, but back then, uh, we we didn't actually learn about environment that much in school. But then when I moved to university, I chose um, to study water management and environment. And then I started volunteering for a couple of international NGOs. And during that time, there was... Um, the discussions of the Conference of Parties in Copenhagen, which is one of the UNFCCC negotiations, which is the climate talks negotiations. And back then, I, I got heavily involved with both civil society actors and grassroots movements across the region. I, I reached out. And I since then, um, around, around that time, I began to uh, to be an observer for the negotiations until the year after I became an um, an actually an official uh, observer for the climate change talks um, since um, early 2011. Mm-hmm. So I was um, I got into the field of observing what governments and other actors are doing on the climate change policy level. And I felt that um, our region is not that present. And it was present a lot by, uh, and presented by the petroleum companies and um, um, a fossil fuels industry. Mm-hmm. And this is how I, um, then I wanted really to shift the thinking and to remind everyone in those closed rooms that they are actually deciding on our destiny and our behalf. So I started the trainings um, um, and also I, um, I was heavily engaged with several um, 
civil society actors like Greenpeace, which I led their Arab World program, and a few other organizations until it led to the COP in Paris, in which we had a huge work in campaigning with Arab civil society, in which we trained and we worked with a lot the past like 10 years mm-hmm. in order to... Um, to have actually a Paris agreement because one of the main blockers for uh, for the agreement was the Arab group um, in that um, in 2015. So this is how I got into um, it, it's it's both passion and interest and also like it it interests me that how much we are we ignore the environment around us while we are in it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a roller coaster, but it was worth it. <laughs> I'm I'm sure. Um, I want to go back to um, you know, your time in high school because you said that that's really where this passion started. Was mm. was there a specific um, class or teacher or campaign that was underway that sort of got you thinking about this differently? Um, it's actually more of um interested more in geology but then it shifted to the whole environment like it, all everything that we are in is influenced by our actions so this is how um it, how it moved but in university i had the most influence from my professors so mm-hmm. there are specific there are specific people who actually supported my vision and believed that i could do something that's that's wonderful, um, and and it's it's great that the library had access to these books. So we have to thank that library for um, <laughs> for really inspiring you to do this important work. So um, climate change and the sort of the connection to security, not just sort of political stability, but also economic, social um, uh, security, are really missing from the headlines unless there's you know, a big conference happening somewhere, right? The likes yeah, of cops yeah. and others. Um, and you do a lot of this work with civil society, but how do you also try to engage the media to get the story going? It seems that unless there's a natural disaster somewhere that happens, that um, the conversation is not picking up, um, at least in mainstream media. Definitely. So um, the first thing that I want to say is that climate change, as you said, is a cross-cutting issue. So you cannot talk about climate change in silo or do you want to talk about climate change impact and the climate change resilience without talking about adaptation, nature-based solutions, about security, about the political scene. Um, I can say that social media has played a great part in our work in campaigning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because um, for a long time, a few media journalists were interested in that uh, subject, and uh, we worked with them a lot. And they they are a great support. And I can say, even the Paris Agreement won't pass without a comprehensive co- cooperation between media, civil society, governments who believe in the cause, um, um, actors like part that like private sector and um, philanthropists. So all of us came together under one umbrella to make it happen. 
Now, back to your question, we work a lot with media. And um, I did a lot of media trainings for media and journalists who need to, co to cover more, not just like the headlines, but also to have more investigative journalism in our region, because we lack that when it comes yeah. to environmental issues and climate change in specific. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we still have a few. So from my experience, the journalist, once they show interest in that, sometimes the editor doesn't, uh, it, it, like usually they are not interested because it doesn't pick up that much audience, obviously. And also, um, and also because always environment and climate change come, uh, it's not a priority at all. So the same journalists would be covering uh, politics, would be covering, for example, a municipalities, elections, and mm -hmm. climate change on the side. Yeah. We have very few uh, climate change or environmental uh, journalists in our region. Uh, they are really good, but they are very few. Thank you so much, Safa. Indeed, uh, the, um, the media uh, uh, needs to highlight these issues. It is not really um, just a luxury. And given that your work is focused on civil society, I'm curious to know whether you have successful discussions with policymakers and decision makers at the government level. Do they take the work that you do seriously at the civil society level? Yeah, well, th this is a very risky question that I need to answer in a very diplomatic way, huh? Sure. So, <laughs> no, I just, uh, I just want to say that part of my job and my, like my daily job is to do advocacy, and the main advocacy is with the governmental sector. So this is what I do the past fifteen plus years, and um, it depends on the government, it depends on the country. And it depends on the people. Uh, when I started at first, they didn't take us, like at least for me, they didn't take me seriously because I was too young. I was um, a female also, an Arab female and too young. But then when I built the relationship, the reputation and that my work has proven that it's good, I got uh, a better um, way and and also i learned a lot because with each um, year by year you learn more and more advocacy tactics and you build your network so it's become not easier and not easy but easier for me to advocate because also 15 years ago it wasn't people didn't see our uh, the direct impact of climate change that they are seeing now yeah, And this has, um, unfortunately, helped us a lot. Like, we didn't want to see this happening in order for the government to take climate change seriously. Also, mm -hmm. technology has been very creative and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. I'm talking about mitigation under climate change, which is, mm -hmm. which is basically renewable energy. Mm. So things has been colliding and going in that direction. It's been definitely challenging. Uh, but um, like as we saw like in Copenhagen or as we see on the national level government, uh, because if, if there is a policy in a place or a legislation for a climate change, 
not it's not really implemented and we saw that when um, the government submitted their ndcs the national determined contributions mm-hmm. when you see the ndcs for the arab region and the government it's conditional to fund so the governments okay. basically are saying if you are paying us this amount of money we will reduce our greenhouse gases Yeah, so it's that, and that conditionality gives them an incentive to take these things more seriously. Definitely. Um, so we work a lot with donor countries as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, very um, effective on the part of uh, the donor community. So it's it's definitely good that they've injected that conditionality. Um, now, speaking of um, you know civil society activism across borders in the mm-hmm. in the MENA region. Um, Do you work with um, other uh, groups, you know, in Egypt, Tunisia, um, Lebanon, um, and do you coordinate efforts? So, so for example, for the upcoming COP in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, do you get together and decide on sort of the priority areas you want to focus on? Um, is there sort of like, you know, environmentalists beyond borders kind of work? So I'm I'm really proud of the work um, that I founded before. So we did two things uh, the past few years. Uh, before the COP in Doha, Qatar, um, I was one of the founding members of the Arab Youth Climate Change Movement, in which it actually has over, like now, thousands of youth from the Arab region who work together Um, on climate change, either policies, implementation on the national level, so country by country, sub-regional and regional. And just in 2014, uh, I was a part, I was a board co-chair of an org- a big organization called the Climate Action Network, which has around 1,000 NGOs under it, like WWF, Greenpeace. And during that time, I realized that there's no coordination in the Arab region. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we created the Climate Action Network Arab World, which now has over 1,400 NGOs, not necessarily working wow. on climate change as a core thing, mm-hmm. but some, some of them, for example, in, um, in Morocco, working on um, gender and climate change and, and human rights and women's rights. So it depends any any NGO who fits a specific criteria who at least wants to work on climate change can join this network and we gather we gather in Lebanon for the Bilad Sham countries and we gather in Morocco or Tunisia or whoever whatever country in Morocco um, in Egypt so there are there is and this is one one network that I proudly founded with uh, many partners But there are multiple other networks who I didn't necessarily found, but they are working also on that sphere. So there is definitely coordination, informal and formal, across the civil society. But of course, um, there is also coordination on the national level. One mm-hmm. great example that Morocco, Moroccan NGOs came up with, the Climate Justice Coalition, mm-hmm. that has uh, all the civil society actors who not necessarily work on climate change alone, but on human rights, on resources, on agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, and trade unions. So this is a successful national example as well. And, and, and that just um, exemplifies how really it's not so narrowly defined 
working on the environment because you have to be able to work with others um, because ultimately all of this is interconnected. Um, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned um, earlier and then you, you also highlighted uh, women's rights and the intersection between climate change and gender in Morocco. Um, and this is, uh, I think, a, uh, a topic that uh, deserves a lot more attention because of the specific impact of uh, climate change on uh, girls and women um, and the important role that women play um, in general in their communities in water management, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but you rarely see women at the negotiating table when it comes to water negoti negotiations between governments. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you have experienced this sort of treatment uh, because mm -hmm. you are a woman environmentalist. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience, but how you see also this shifting a little bit. Also, Marissa, I want to touch base on something that uh, the environmental field is not, especially the negotiations, it's not, it wasn't a safe space uh, before. Like, uh, like we had, uh, like imagine for two weeks, 24-7 uh, in the same venue. It was also hard for women to leave their children for two weeks, for example, because yeah. it's very hectic for mm -hmm. women. And usually men, it's, it's easier for them to travel uh, for two weeks to spend. And it's, it's two weeks, the negotiations. Of course, you need to travel before and after for yeah. the pre-negotiations and the other intercessions. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been easy. And I think the only reason that I was able to do it because I was delaying having a baby. <laughs> yeah. To be very honest, because... I couldn't. And now, for example, the, the past COP and the next COP, I won't be able to be there because I'm, I'm a new mom. And I can, yeah. and there's no place for, for women with the children in the negotiations, which is very sad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And well, it's, it, the same goes for young women with, from the young and the youth, because it's a very male dominant, all the remain dominant negotiations. Mm. Uh, and and I've been there to support. A lot of people have been there to support. But uh, it's really hard for young women to be in the negotiations with all those governmental actors. It's now getting easier. I think the UN and others are getting aware, especially with the huge youth movement. Mm. But, um, but I, I won't say it's easy, to be honest. This is one thing. The other thing is the actual impact on climate change. If I want to have an, a climate change action, I need to hear it from the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable communities and from women, children and girls because mm -hmm. they are the most vulnerable to climate change. And we saw that in climate change also is, is a factor for conflict and in conflicts also women and children who are the most vulnerable. So it's a vicious cycle in which if you want to be, if you want to have a real action on the climate change you need to have those people on the table but to be honest the past few like from paris and beyond even the negotiators from um, our region we we are seeing many wonderful brilliant women who are speaking on behalf of their countries and this just makes me so proud that um, that it, it like many people paved the way for those women to be there mm 
mm. uh, and because because they are good of course and they are brilliant so you can see countries like Saudi Arabia like UAE like Egypt like Tunisia like Lebanon there are brilliant women who are speaking on them on behalf of the government but again it's not enough yeah but it, but it like you said it's um very um, encouraging uh, development that you have women representatives from these governments um, at these global um, fora. Um, and uh, congratulations on your newborn as well. Um, it just it goes back to our discussion um, in other episodes um, about the importance of childcare services and institutionalizing that, um, in fact, in the workplace so that it is easier for activist mothers, working mothers, to be able to do the important work um, that they do as uh, as yourself. So I guess moving uh, further along to uh, the, the setting the agenda for COP, Sharm uh, el-Sheikh, how is it that you know you you may not be able to be there, but um, how is it that you're helping or prepping? Um, mm. you know, civil society actors to be at the table and to present mm. the work that they're doing? So there are a couple of, like multiple ways. But one of the things that the, gov- the governments in the region, because the COP is in our region for two years now, it's now in Egypt and the next year it's going to be in new EE. Right. Um, and, and because of the whole, I think, the revolution, <laughs> let's say, the mm. past few years and the understanding of climate change and how it's impacting the countries, there is a lot of progress when it comes to the civil society governmental relationship. So you will see in the negotiations themselves, you see the negotiators, usually we call them the pink badges. They hold pink badges. You'll mm-hmm. see a lot of civil society actors holding pink badges. So Tunisia, Morocco, Jordan, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, um, a lot of countries have been inviting civil society to be part of their delegations so they can get into closed rooms. So this is one tactic for us to actually influence the negotiations and to be engaged because if if you are having a civil society badge or civil society access you won't be able to hear whatever is happening inside because sometimes they just block civil society and journalists from coming in so this is a tactic that we use a lot we also Mm -hmm. have now a lot of meetings to discuss our messaging and the public narrative that we want to show uh, and we want to speak about and of course we are working with media preparing people to talk to media so there are multiple angles and Mm -hmm. we are doing a mini campaign as well Mm-hmm. Um, so there are multiple ways and tactics that we are using. Definitely, um, um, there is a lot on the national level happening, but also we want we want to collide what is happening on the national level, on the regional level, and then on the international level. Um, yeah. So, and this COP is going to be interesting because um, it's hosted by Egypt. Egypt, a very strong country in the uh, African group. Right. And and they are really and they want to to talk like what what we heard from the Egyptian government and from other actors is that this COP is the adaptation COP and it's the finance COP in which it's going to be like a real African COP. Okay, 
yeah, uh, we look forward to those discussions. Um, and glad to know that you have you've been prepping and using different tactics uh, to do so. In fact, one of our um, global fellows, uh, Peter Schwornstein, um, recently wrote about the role of uh, civil society for the new security beat. So we'll be uh, sure to share that with you, Safa. Yeah, sure. So uh, we want to wrap up the conversation. And I guess one thing that uh, we do, uh, Rajai and I, when we uh, um, you know, sort of uh, close these episodes is ask um, our guests to share the before you launch sort of words of wisdom um, to highlight the key learnings from your journey so far. What advice would you give, particularly young ones, and you talked a little, a lot about the role of youth in environmentalism. What mm. advice do you give them, uh, those who want to enter this field, you know, as environmentalists and social entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So my advice will be is that when I talk to young people and I'm, I'm, I'm mentoring many, many in the region, is that um, you need to be passionate about the subject. It's now trending climate change and climate resilience. But if you if you just riding the wave because it's trending, you will lose the momentum and the interest afterward because there are a lot of ups and downs in this domain. Uh, so you need to have the passion and you need to to be motivated all the time. Um, and also you need to support each other as young people because uh, because this is how we build the momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Working together is very important. Uh, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for your uh, commitment you. to this cause, uh, to your leadership. And uh, we hope to see you in Amman very soon. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is funded by a grant from the United States Department of State. The opinions, findings, and conclusions of this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of State.